Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Well, hey, folks, I'm heading to a polygamous community that's snugly nestled on the Utah-Arizona border. I'm hoping to explore the ghost stories that kept me awake at night during my law enforcement career, and I want to solve, once and for all, the mysteries surrounding things like the baby cemetery or the secret caves filled with explosives and firearms. Let's talk Colts Among Us. Welcome to Profiling Evil Season 2 Podcast, Cults Among Us. As we get started, I hope you'll take a moment and hit that like and subscribe button and ring the bell so that you get all of our notifications on videos like this one. Now, let's talk about the Fundamentalist Church. Many years ago, I was hired by the Attorney General to pursue allegations of ritual abuse in our state. Part of my mission was to better understand and infiltrate these closed societies, which included polygamous communities. The reason was simple. There were allegations of child brides, welfare fraud, and all kinds of abuses that were coming out of these communities. We weren't finding any success holding frank and honest discussions with the leaders of these groups because they were systematically teaching their followers that the government couldn't be trusted. Well, all I can say on that front is during that period of time, the Attorney General's office was honorable and fair, and I was really honored to be a part of that group. But there were so many questions I had surrounding those ghost stories. Acting on a whim, I reached out to my longtime nemesis, Willie Jessup, the former bodyguard to Warren Jeffs, who's a convicted child abuser and predator. In fact, Jessup had served as the bodyguard to the last three self-proclaimed prophets of the FLDS church. I asked Jessup if he'd be willing to visit with me, promising that I'd answer any questions he had for me regarding our actions during that volatile time. Jessup took about a day to respond, and to my surprise, he agreed to meet. He would only give me an hour for the discussion, but by the time it was over, we spent more than seven hours together. You know, I'm not sure we walked away as friends, but we certainly parted under more favorable circumstances than we ever had before. Looking back, Jessup and I had been adversaries for many, many reasons. He was part of a group of people that the state believed was breaking the law. He viewed us, the state, as the enemy of what he termed as a holy war. Well, I had no intention of asking Jessup about Warren Jeffs. The courts had clearly found that Jeffs was a pedophile and a psychopathic predator. My questions instead were going to center on the ghost stories that kept me awake at night. And to my surprise and, frankly, my delight, he did, in fact, answer my questions in part as a piece of restituting his own participation in the abuses. And I think it was 
Willie's own form of redemption. As I started my drive toward the FLDS community, I questioned whether traveling alone into the community where many of the residents once hated me was wise. It had been over 20 years since I was there as an attorney general investigator, but I was suddenly having a flood of memories as I started my trip up the hill in the southeast corner of Hurricane, Utah. I'd traveled this road so many times before, but this time it felt different. I didn't have any authority to be there. And like every other citizen who traveled into Hilldale and Colorado City, I wondered if I'd be met with resentment, curiosity, or perhaps open arms. I paused on the overlook just east of Hurricane and reflected on what it used to look like. The little town was much quieter back then, and it was much smaller. Hurricane was the home of my paternal grandparents and my father. It is a quiet little town that recently experienced a huge housing growth. Now, with that growth came more crime and a loss of innocence. In fact, recently, an active shooter terrorized the community and the surrounding towns as he attempted to escape police who were trying to arrest him. He was shooting at citizens, driving over 100 miles an hour, and crashing into obstacles before police finally deployed spike strips that disabled his vehicle and made the arrest possible. Like many communities around the world, a local city council member remarked that their town wasn't, quote, Mayberry anymore, close quote, referencing that old Andy Griffith show. At one point, the gun-wielding predator shot into a family's car that was leaving Zion National Park. The bullet shattered the window on the car and passed through the shirt, passed through the shirt of one of the children in the car, lodging in the seat next to him. Miraculously, the child wasn't struck, although several occupants of the vehicle suffered cuts from the exploding glass. I marvel at how much things had changed in that little town. And then I resumed my eastward trip on Utah's State Road number 9. I recorded some of my thoughts while I drove, and I thought we'd watch those together. Well, hello, everybody. Mike from Profiling Evil. It's a really interesting day for me today, kind of a full circle day. I'm making a drive out to the polygamous community in Hilldale, Utah, Colorado City, Arizona. It's right on uh, uh, the border, and they actually uh, were smart enough back in the 50s to create this church that covered both borders so that if they got word of one particular state preparing to raid the compound, they could move into the adjoining state and avoid being captured uh, because police couldn't cross over state lines at that time and the federal government hadn't figured out fully how to interact with local government. So kind of an interesting period of time and it worked very well for them for a number of years. The reason this is so important to me today is that 20 years, 25 years ago, I was investigating this cult, chasing those ghost stories of child brides and child sexual abuse and getting into a closed society and getting them to actually tell you what's going on is next to impossible, especially in what's considered to be a generational cult. 
Now, in my opinion, and I categorize two areas of polygamous groups and closed societies during my career looking into these kinds of cases. And I looked at those cases as convert groups, uh, groups that were new and emerging and uh, were recruiting members on a regular basis, trying to build their ranks. Uh, those convert groups were much easier to infiltrate and tear apart uh, and to discover criminal activity in because people were coming in with a mindset of traditional lifestyles versus cult lifestyles. And while many bought into the full cult belief system, there were many who walked away at some point later disillusioned, sometimes after they'd given up everything that was important to them, family, friends, their financial security, and other kinds of things. So um, those, those convert closed societies were much easier, and today still much easier to infiltrate and understand criminal activity within and be able to impact. But on the flip side, the uh, generational closed society, in this case polygamy, but it could be the family, which we've just recently discussed on Colts Among Us, or a number of other long-term generational cults where children are born into the cult, they're raised in the ideology, they're convicted and committed to it, and nothing is gonna get in the way of continuing to proselytize that effort. Those generational closed societies are incredibly difficult to get inside and to infiltrate. Well, in the early 2000s, Attorney General Jan Graham, who I had the privilege of serving as Chief of Staff to, came up with an idea that we called safe at home. And the idea was that anyone, regardless of where they live, should at least feel safe in the confines of their home. It was an incredibly powerful program that allowed us to teach about child sex abuse, incest, and other kinds of things in the schools, in churches, in community centers, and it led to a lot of children getting the courage to step up and reveal that they were being sexually abused. Uh, it, it was a program that to this day, I think was one of the most powerful things that I ever had the opportunity to participate in and to be a part of. Because my assignment was in the polygamous community and looking at closed societies, cults, and ritual crime in the state, and if you remember back in the early 1990s, we were having this satanic panic era where everyone believed that Satan was involved in crimes happening everywhere. I mean, it really was a panic. Uh, during that time, I had started to create some very uh, interesting adversarial at times roles with the different self-proclaimed prophets of these polygamous groups. And when Safe at Home program came out, we approached them and said, we would like to come into your community and teach your followers about the Safe at Home program. And we basically put a lot of pressure on these self-proclaimed prophets and said, 
we are confident that you, just like everyone else, are disgusted with child sex abuse and, and rape and incest. And so we are very confident that you would allow us to do it. Well, it put them in a, a rock and a hard spot because they wanted to appear like they were uh, honest and forthright and doing the right thing. And yet they were really up against a wall in some cases because they were committing sexual crimes against children in the form of uh, polygamy and uh, early uh, marriages and in some cases just flat out sexual perverted abuse of children. As this thing came full circle, what it did is put me in a position where I could go into the polygamous communities, uh, the Allreds, the Kingstons, the FLDS, and teach the safe at home principles and remind people that there are ways in which they could report abuses and get help. Uh, you could see how uncomfortable the leaders were and we came to realize that we were only getting people uh, attending these sessions that the community had set up and prepared and yet little by little the message started getting out. I'm going to take a break and grab me a Diet Dr. Pepper, and we'll jump back into this discussion in a few minutes. Well, since the FLDS broke away from their mainstream church over polygamy, I thought it might be helpful to give you a quick lesson on the topic. Plural marriage, or polygamy, was no stranger to the citizens of Utah. In the early days of the Latter-day Saint Church, certain members were given permission to take multiple wives. It was all in an effort to restore ancient principles that were practiced in the Old Testament. Well, by 1904, the church officially declared polygamy against church policy, and they began excommunicating members who practiced it. Some former members chose the practice over their church membership, and they left the church. Back in 1991, when I was investigating these groups, polygamy was illegal in Utah and across the United States, although cohabitation was not. Now, cohabitation simply means that two individuals choose to live together, either as spouses or unmarried partners. It's an agreement or a contract of sorts explaining property and financial arrangements between the people. In other words, it was a term that caused public officials a great deal of problems when they tried to enforce laws like polygamy. It boiled down to who do you go after and who do you leave alone? Are you singling out a couple because they practice a belief system like polygamy? Or are you using the current application because of sexual orientation? Broken marriages where someone's sneaking out? Situations like that. I hope you can see how difficult it was. Because in Utah, law enforcement just turned a blind eye to the practice. Most of the polygamous groups were peaceable, and arrests were only made when law enforcement discovered illegal activities like tax evasion or child brides. You know, it would take many years before polygamy would be decriminalized in Utah. But I want to be really clear about that. It's decriminalized now it doesn't mean that they're they're uh, supporting it. To be clear, polygamy remains illegal, although no longer a felony. 
decriminalizing the practice gave consenting adults a little more leeway. But of course, the sexual abuse of any kind of another individual is still a felony and still a crime, and it's vigorously pursued by law enforcement. Now, let's listen as I talk about polygamy during my drive. Well, I'm back on the road, and maybe you can see a little bit of the countryside out my window as I uh, go. Maybe I can turn this a little bit and get you a little better view of some of the area, because it really is a gorgeous part of the state of Utah. So um, back to our discussion on polygamy in the state of Utah. Of course, uh, polygamy came with the uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They, they used to be known as the Mormons. They've made a real concerted effort to uh, make sure that people understand that they actually go by the title of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. With that early entry into Utah, the Latter-day Saints were trying to practice polygamy like they had read about in the Bible. And again, think, think about this. This was an emerging new religion. They were trying to do what they believed God had commanded them to do. And uh, after being chased out of Missouri and other places, had found the Salt Lake Valley as a place of refuge. That then caused Brigham Young, the then prophet of the Latter-day Saint faith, to extend into other areas of the Utah Territory in hopes that if they ever became a state, which we know they did, that they would have strongholds in different areas and could use that to create the state boundaries. Polygamy was practiced by a very few, and that's something that people don't really realize, is that it were they were only a number of people that were given this authority from church leaders to be involved in polygamous relationships. But uh, in the late 1800s, the church said, you know what, we have to be in line with the government. We cannot have polygamy. By 1904, they reiter uh, reiterated how important it was that no one be a polygamist and that all polygamous relationships were uh, terminated, that those who were practicing polygamy would be excommunicated from the church. That really upset a group of seven people down in this region that we're traveling to who determined that it was important that they carry on. They believed that the Latter-day Saint faith still was the true church, but they felt like they got off course and that polygamy needed to stay on. So they continued to practice polygamy, which was against federal law, was against state law, and yet they continued to practice. Now, for many, many years, law enforcement simply turned a blind eye, thinking that consenting adults were living in those kinds of relationships anyway. In, in reality, the law was bigamy, that you couldn't have more than, than one spouse. And people were continuing to do that. If we went after a polygamist and charged them with polygamy when I was a police officer, then why weren't you going out and getting the guy who walked away from his family and was having a relationship with another woman or even married to another woman and charging them with polygamy and putting them in jail? So it really became a difficult law 
to uh, investigate and to prosecute. What that meant was that we really focused on what was most important, the allegations of child brides being taken, um, the allegations of welfare fraud or public assistance fraud or other kinds of uh, crimes like that. As we travel through Colorado City and Hilldale today, you're gonna to see that there are a number of homes that still look like they're unfinished. They've been unfinished for decades. And the reason that they kept those homes unfinished was that as long as they could say and argue that they were under construction, they didn't have to pay property taxes. They paid just for the piece of land rather than the structure. And they abused this uh, loophole in the law and still do today in many cases. So you'll see that there are homes that are just absolutely disasters out there that people are living in. You'd think they were abandoned when in reality there are people living within them and uh, it's, it's really disgusting that children and families are living in those kinds of circumstances. Uh, when, when we started investigating these cases, there were horrendous allegations that we tried to make sense of. Allegations of child brides. Uh, if you go back to my first discussion before I stopped for a Diet Dr. Pepper, you, you'll remember that I talked about the fact that there were convert polygamous groups and generational polygamous groups. Now, you could replace the word polygamist with any other kind of cult and you would have the same kind of dynamic in my opinion. The convert groups were much easier to infiltrate and get information out of, to find who those child brides were, to find where the public assistance and fraud was happening because people would become disillusioned and had a much narrower window of mind manipulation and infiltration. Now, go forward and think about the generational victim of cult behavior, and they have grown up in this environment. They have grown up with this mind manipulation, mind control, thought reform, whatever you want to call it. And in that lifetime, they have committed themselves to a belief system and an ideology. In some cases, that ideology is that if I say anything, I'm going to injure all of these people who I've associated with my whole life, my safety net, my home, my parents, my siblings. Um, we may have a chance to talk to polygamists today who will tell you they have 50, 60, 70 brothers and sisters as a result of these polygamous relationships. And they had lives that they are very pleased with. They had wonderful lives, according to them. Uh, and, and the state of Utah, and as an investigator, I wasn't interested in disrupting that. It wasn't a lifestyle I want. It wasn't a system that I believed in. It wasn't a way of living that I would want for my children and family. But it was theirs and it made them happy and it was their belief system and i don't know why we have such a compulsion to go against somebody else's faith just because it's not the same as ours we saw this with the hate mongering that we've seen between uh, at times christian and and those who are jewish or 
Muslim. And uh, it, it just never has made sense to me because I believe, and everyone that I've met, and I'm speaking from my experience, having interviewed literally hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of polygamists and people living in closed societies or even in covens and other kinds of things. They want the same thing you and I want. They want a safe life for themselves. They want a happy life for their families. They want the things that you and I want for our families. The difference is that eventually in some of these kinds of uh, cults and organizations, their perversions get the best of them. And those perversions lead to criminal behavior. And when it becomes criminal, that's when law enforcement gets involved. And frankly, when something has to be done, children shouldn't be forced to marry at age 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or even 15. Children should be able to court and find someone they like and experience the failures of having a courtship gone wrong. All of those things. And then make choices and lifetime companions. Not have some disgusting old man deciding who that should be. And so that's where we focused our uh, interest, is in going out and trying to protect those children who were victimized by adults who said they spoke for God. And frankly, folks, I don't know which God they were talking to, but the God that I believe in doesn't take away the rights of children and women and uh, youth uh, or even other men. And, uh, and so it was easy for me to go out and hunt down predators of this kind of child abuse or adult sexual abuse. Now, we'll have some uh, interesting times while we're out here. One thing I'm really wanting to do is I have been haunted over the years about the number of children who died undocumented within these closed societies. And today I'm going to go by a place that I used to walk often. It's a child cemetery where the children of the FLDS were buried. Uh, there have been articles written, and I'm going to put some of those up on the screen, where people have argued that because of the incestuous lifestyle that polygamy, generational polygamy, created, that um, there were a lot of birth defects. Uh, there were horror stories that I received over the years of children being stillborn and uh, thrown into a pig pen to be consumed by the pigs because it would destroy all of the evidence of being buried or burned or whatever to get rid of the evidence that the child even existed. Well, in this cemetery, these are the children that we do know existed. I don't know about the other ghost stories. I know that throughout my career, ghost stories were kind of like where there's smoke, there's fire, and that there were grains of truth in all of those. So it may be that it happened once, it may have happened never, or it may have happened many times. But we're going to explore some of those things. So uh, stick around, we'll continue this journey, and uh, I'm really looking forward to meeting my former nemesis. Willie Jessup, the bodyguard of Warren Jeffs and the spokesperson for the FLDS until everything fell apart. We'll talk again in a minute.
Well, hey, everybody, this is Mike from Profiling Evil, and I hope you're enjoying Profiling Evil podcast season two, Cults Among Us. So I hope you'll take a moment and purchase my book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Deceived chronicles my investigation into a serial ritual cult that was sexually abusing adults and children. In all, there were more than 4,000 counts of sexual abuse and rape. Can you imagine these children having to go through this? Now, I've written it in a way that it doesn't really get into the seedy side of what happened, but it clearly calls out the abuse that happened. More importantly, I think it chronicles how the victims rose above it, how they became the victors and the, the predators lost. In fact, 12 were arrested and convicted of their crimes in that cult. I think you'll find it interesting as we explore cult dynamics, how cults recruit people and how they keep them involved, and most importantly, how seemingly intelligent people can can be convinced to commit serious crimes, all in the name of a god. I hope you'll check out Deceived. You can get a hardbound signed copy by going to profilingevil.com. Or you can get paperback and ebook versions through Amazon. Thanks so much for your support of Profiling Evil. And for those of you who are interested in supporting our efforts, you can do so by joining our channel memberships. You can get in for as little as $1.99 a month. Or you can join my academy level, my personal favorite, where you get all kinds of additional information and a little homework. It's only $4.99 a month, and it really helps us to continue to roll out quality content. Now, let's get back to my exploration of the FLDS and the ghost stories that I chased for many years. As I entered the community, I instinctively started looking behind buildings and in my rearview mirror for Warren Jeff's henchmen. These were the security officers who worked under the command of Willie Jessup, Jeff's bodyguard. Back in those days, any vehicle that entered the community was followed by a well-trained team of surveillance. It was intimidating to say the least back then, as a group of four or five teams would orchestrate their monitoring efforts. If I turned left, the person following me would continue to go straight, but in another block, somebody else would pick up and follow me. When they felt they were recognized, they'd peel off and a third or fourth person would pull into position and observe my movements. It was clear they'd been trained in the very techniques that we used during my days as a SWAT officer or whenever we conducted surveillance on a crime figure. About eight years ago, a Salt Lake City news reporter named Lad Egan reported that it was even deeper than I suspected and that the FLDS was using government-owned cameras in town to keep watch on not only church members, but anyone entering the community. In some respects, nothing had changed. In other areas, change was evident. One thing I noticed that gave me great hope for their future was the installation of sidewalks. There were stores that weren't owned by cult members and businesses that were springing up in the area. It appeared like there was industry and new homes being built. But these homes were much different than the homes that the Jeff's cult built. They were new and modern looking. Some even appeared expensive. And they they looked normal. They weren't boxes with dozens of bedrooms, but they looked like traditional 
three and four bedroom homes with dining rooms, front porches and yards that didn't have that signature eight foot tall block wall or metal fence that prevented people from seeing what was happening inside those homes. Sure, there were still the long-standing homes of the FLDS and the control by the UEP, which stands for United Effort Plan. The UEP Trust was created by the FLDS Church back in 1942 on this concept of united order, something that allowed followers to share in all the assets. But there really wasn't any sharing. The leaders of the group and a few independently rich businessmen were the people who had the big, beautiful fortresses that they called home. Those who had properties held by the UEP instead lived in torn down houses that were never completed. Our belief back then was that it was so that they could avoid paying property taxes, arguing that the home is still under construction. We'll talk about that a little later as Jessup and I tackle some of the ghost stories. But to finish my history lesson on the UEP, the state of Utah seized control of it in 2005. Admit all these allegations of mismanagement. That's when Warren Jeffs was convicted of child sex abuse. And and again, he's still serving a life prison in Texas. Since then, the complex fund has remained the focus of an ongoing legal battle. As I pulled in front of the Most Wanted Inn to meet Willie Jessup, I reflected back on the huge compound he built for Warren Jeffs. Now, many YouTube creators have wrongly stated it's the place where Jeffs and his wife lived. Not so. Warren Jeffs, frankly, has never seen the structure with his own eyes. It was started under his direction while he was still in prison. Everyone believed that he would be acquitted of the charges against him and that God would return him back to the building. And and at his prompting, the building was erected to his specifications, which included these incredibly high fortified walls, thick brick interior walls on the building, and enough rooms to hold his 84 wives and families. There were a number of smaller cottages in the block that surrounded the compound and a large executive home to the northeast of the main structure intended to be Jeff's new residence. Look at these old images I recovered showing the groundbreaking in June of 2010. Again, you can see it was an open field with nothing in it. Six months later, in January of 2011, four duplex homes had been built presumably for some of Warren Jeff's wives. It was practical since the number of wives was growing rapidly. Then the revelation came to build the second compound for Jeff's, complete with these 12-foot high still enforced uh, two-foot thick walls. In three months, the building was erected, and by November of 2011, the entire compound was complete, landscaped and fenced, with a large warehouse to the north. Today, that warehouse is the Water Canyon High School, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But watch here as Willie Jessup describes the thickness of the walls, the heavy metal gates to the property, and some of the fortifications that Jeff's demanded. Keep in mind that once Jessup received the assignment to build this fortress, he sprang into action. 
completing the entire structure, all the construction in 90 days. That's unheard of. He and hundreds of FLDS faithful worked around the clock, spending untold amounts of money on the project. Okay, now tell me about the walls again. Well, the walls are pure concrete, or white, all the way inside. It's got more steel in it than anything you can imagine. You could hit them with a full load of dump truck and hardly crack them. The panels are steel with lining to keep it from being so we could protect him from assassinations and that kind of stuff. You'd have to go to get to his house, you'd have to come from through this wall, through that wall, to even get to the house. When I asked him why Jeffs felt it was so necessary to have such thick and fortified walls, he responded two reasons for that. One is it would stop any assassination attempts on the prophet. And number two was really intriguing to me. He said, consider his frame of reference when he ordered the construction. I was puzzled and sat for a moment, and then it dawned on me. Warren Jeffs was actually sitting in prison, surrounded by high walls, built with steel and impenetrable concrete and heavy metal gates. His frame of reference was the very prison walls that were keeping him captive inside the correctional facility, and in his own wacky way, may have been protecting him from the many people he believed wanted to kill him. Well, before I leave the inn, I wanted to show you the exterior of the compound. Here you can see those high walls, fortified to prevent access. And remember Willie's comment on that video a minute ago. You could hit the wall with a fully loaded dump truck and hardly crack them. Well, inside the rooms reminded me of what I envisioned from the outside. The windows, if any, were really small. I wondered if that was a design to improve heating and air conditioning efficiency or if it was something more nefarious, like hiding what was happening behind the facade. For those interested, the Most Wanted Inn is now available for check-in by weary travelers. Willie and his family have done a beautiful job transforming it into a hotel, but I found it so interesting as I walked through one of the finest suites in the complex. Again, only one window, and it was small. As Willie described why he converted this building, you will hear also some disdain that he had for my former office, the Attorney General's office. It was a subtle reminder to me of the long-standing differences between us and his belief that this still is a holy war waged against the FLDS people. Pay close attention to the window as we quickly tour this suite and listen closely to Willie's words. So why did you build this? I mean, why did you decide to convert this into a bed and breakfast when you took over the assets? Because it was belonged to the people. The people lost everything they had to build it. And all they needed is another government agency to come in like the Utah Attorney General appointed Bruce Wisen and take more of their assets and rape them for them. Isn't it? I mean, look what the government did to all the land. So now what, I just turn it over or do we go and so this was just a piece of it. 
but it included all of it. But now, how many family reunions are here? How many weddings are here? How many people come here because it's a welcome home? Instead of, oh, we're here from the government, we're here to help. We'll take your land and sell it and pay our lawyers to take it from you. Get it? Well, hey, folks, you've been listening to An Investigator Returns to the FLDF After 20 Years, Part 1. Make sure you jump over now to Part 2 and catch the rest of the story where we really go into detail about the hidden caves and the baby cemetery. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is TruthFinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give TruthFinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.